You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Alex Box, a primary educator and educational researcher. In this episode, we find out about alternative approaches to teaching mathematics. We explore how learning can be encouraged through spontaneous or planned conversations and by asking questions that drive discussions and the exchange of information. Alex outlines how an entire class might approach a single maths problem, with students invited to share their strategies for solving the problem with the group. As guided by the teacher, the student's strategies are further discussed, explored and critiqued to support mathematical understandings. Alex explains some of the inbuilt nuances to these approaches, such as allocated think time, collaborative conversations, also called number talks, and strategies that invite reasoning, thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Exploring these more social approaches to mathematics education, we dive right in and enjoyably explore a short worked example, the experience of adding two numbers, followed by sharing and further discussion on my strategy. We chat about student enthusiasm for maths and the realities of everyday number anxiety. Alex offers insights into the ongoing conversation points of teaching maths, such as explicit instruction and inquiry-based social, collaborative and integrated approaches to teaching and learning, and the importance of finding an ideal balance of these approaches and strategies. Alex talks about her ongoing research and the emerging global maths and play movement, which encourages the value of mathematics in school and everyday society. Here's my conversation with Alex Box. Hello again, Alex. Nice to be chatting with you. Hi. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So as we well, as I like to start off these um, these episodes, I want to find out a little bit more about your interests and what you studied or um, earlier on, a little bit more about you. So what can you tell us? How wow. far back do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it did, you know, it did take me a while to get into teaching. And so um, I, I do feel like it was probably a series of serendipitous events that has got me to where I am now. I mean, okay, I'm intrigued yeah. by all of that. What, is, <laughs> what does that mean? Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think high school I went through the whole, oh, you know, marine biology and a whole bunch of other things, just these sort of fantastical ideas of, you know, myself in, in different roles. And I remember um, relief aid worker was one for, for a number of years after, you know, being involved in world vision, 40-hour famines and <clears throat> stuff like that. Um, and then I remember being in year 11 or 12 and going on this two or three day camp with World Vision somewhere out in Bacchus Marsh. And uh, there was an opportunity to step inside the shoes of a you know relief worker and try and get rice from somewhere to somewhere else. And by the time we got to the destination, most of our team had been shot, including me, and we'd have to give away a lot of the rice to bribe you know border officials. It was in that moment that I thought, okay, I'm not sure that this job is for me. Is this, um, is this like a, a like an active role play? 
experience yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. like a sort of yeah set up, and you know they had that people were scattered over the grounds, acting as border officials and all that sort of thing, and. Yeah, so that was, um, you know, kind of like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life now because I'm not sure that I quite have the <laughs> the, uh, the bravery for this role. Um, and it also felt kind of hopeless, you know, getting to the final destination with just a portion of the the goods that we were aiming to deliver. So it's sort of, you know, I, I, I know now that I need um, opportunities to actually succeed <laughs> in serving others. That's kind of what... Uh, drives me and to do more of the same. So um, that probably wasn't going to be the right role for me. And yeah, anyway, um, I ended up uh, enrolling in university into a science education degree. And I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. But one of the uh, things that came up in a conversation with my parents putting in preferences was, oh, you know, well, there's, there's a need for a lot of maths and science teachers. I'd done okay in biology and maths methods, which is the sort of, you know, considered, I guess, well, it was considered quite a challenging maths. Um, and, yeah, I graduated high school with a false impression of my own maths ability because I got quite a good score um, but then got into to maths at university and I just did not know what was going on. Uh, failed, dropped out, worked in various roles for the next year. Well, that's pretty confronting. I mean, I have in my li own liaison, liaisons with maths uh, lecturers at university. Mm. It is a, a thing that they research even that transition from high school into first year mm. and ha what the curriculum's like. And to hear that it was a bit daunting, maybe <laughs> if that's the right word. So well, what did you do around yeah. that time? Well, I looked, I mean, I look back on that with the work I do now and realised that I just had no conceptual understanding and that I wrote, learnt my way through the exams. Um, and, but yeah, so I dropped out or sorry, took a year off, <laughs> better way to put it. Um, and eventually, you know, was getting a little bit restless in the jobs I was doing. I was working in a doctor's reception. I was working, um, in a pub, pouring beers and clearing out, uh, poker machines. Not the most positive environment, but it, it was pretty good money for that time in my life. Um, and, yeah, took a couple of nannying jobs, just bits and pieces. And, you know, probably about nine months into that year, I was getting really restless and just needing something to stimulate my brain again. I sort of like, I don't know what I'm going to study, but I need to study something and um, eventually enrolled in an arts degree. So I did, I did a, a three-year arts degree over four years and majored in Indonesian, which was one of the subjects I did at high school and minored in Spanish um, and then just did a few other bits and pieces like criminology and just other interesting subjects. Oh, you know, just a yeah. few other bits and pieces <laughs> like criminology. Just mixed bag, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it was in my maybe second or third, possibly third or fourth year part-time doing that, that I, oh yeah, it must have been the last year because I was doing the Indonesian subject where we had to apply. It was the last subject. So we applied our Indonesian in the context of journalism and had some opportunities to write for some local Indonesian community magazines <clears throat> and stuff like that. And one of my assignments was I had to write about a local issue and some sort of local initiative. And for some reason, I decided to go into my old primary school and interview 
my old principal who was still there at the time uh, about their SunSmart program and write that up as an article. And at the end of the interview, the principal there uh, said, oh, you know, would you be interested in a part-time job, just 10 hours a week? So I, um, I took on that role for the rest of that year. It was just, you know, a couple of months. And it was within a month of being in the primary school environment, I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is the place I want to be. <laughs> so, um, What was it about that environment that appealed to you? The kids, it was the learning. It was, I think, I, I really stepped, I just felt like I was in a role that came very naturally to me, which was listening and kind of, I suppose, um, offering ideas or just, it just really appealed to me that idea of supporting young people to grow and, you know, know themselves and, um, yeah, learn. So, and look, the, the community itself was really positive as well. The teachers and the, the staff and the parents, it was a positive place to be. So, uh, it was probably a, a really nice place to kind of be thrown into by chance and, um, yeah, experience that, experience primary education in a way that I hadn't seen it. You know, I hadn't really been in a primary school since I was at primary school. <laughs> so you should. Yeah. Are you sorry? You go. Oh no! Um, I was just going to say I went. I think I went on a couple of music camps when I was at high school, which mixed you know the high school students and the younger kids together. So, and I, I'd coached kid like I'd coached primary school kids growing up in my teens as well. So I sort of had that like I already knew that I liked working with and supporting younger kids, but I never really thought about becoming a primary teacher. Yeah. So at this point, you've got a half. You started a science education degree that didn't quite go anywhere and then you enrolled in arts and then are you still you kind of finishing that off at, at this stage or are you yeah. yeah yeah so I was finishing that off I took uh, a year off just a sabbatical I actually became really ill um, and developed type 1 diabetes around sort of this time so I must have been about 24 I think so I just decided to take a year off again after the arts degree a gap year and I worked I continued to work in that school as an integration aide and just sort of get my head around life as a type 1 diabetic <laughs> or, or or living with type 1 diabetes or encouraged to say. And, yeah, just um, kind of find my feet and and look, look around for, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to go into teaching, I'm going to need to do a graduate year or, a, you know, a postgraduate diploma or whatever it's called. Um, and I did that. So I, I, I enrolled in that the following year. And I got into Monash uh, university at Peninsula. They have the primary education program down there. I also got into Charles Darwin University, which is up in the Northern Territory. And I decided to go with them. Uh, I didn't have to go there. It was all going to be remote. But the reason that I decided to go with Charles Darwin University was that they had 80 days of practicum in the one year, as opposed to the 45 that I would have done through the other university. And at the time, I just felt given that I hadn't done you know, a full degree, I thought that that would probably be a good way to set me up um, with a bit more experience by the end of the year. And I'm really glad that I that I went with that because I had a really great experience in one classroom. I was in there for 80 days over the year. So I really got to step into that role of a teacher that worked with a group of students throughout the year. And, um, you know, by the end of it, I was in, I was just so ready for my own class. You know, I, I just felt so confident about 
what was involved and how to navigate difficult situations and 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 I loved it you know I just absolutely loved every minute of it so yeah I felt pretty confident that this was the right the right profession to continue on with and yeah. so then when you did actually graduate and and go off into the world what happened then well, I, yeah, I got a job in the school that I had a practicum, that I did my practicum in. So they were looking for someone to, to take a classroom position. And so I, I got asked if I'd be interested. And I actually thought at the time, oh, I don't know if I'm quite ready. Maybe I need another rest. You know, like, oh, it's 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 exciting. I thought maybe I might do some CRT for a while. But when they, you know, when they asked me, I just thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm ready to do it. So, yeah, so then I spent uh, seven years uh, teaching as a full-time classroom teacher in that school. Yeah. What's CRT? I, I, I'm not familiar. Oh, yeah, casual relief teacher. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've lived and breathed <laughs> that and I didn't even know that was a... Oh, maybe that's a local term down here in Melbourne. I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. It's more, yeah. Or maybe I haven't done it for so long. It, it's been introduced since then. Possibly. I don't know. Yeah. And then... Um, well, I guess just to kind of get us up to speed with where mm. you're at at the moment, Yeah. what yeah. did you do after that? Uh, well, by the end of the seventh year, I was pretty exhausted. I think most people would, you know, if you looked at me, you would tell that I was pretty burned out. I ex- exhausted all my sick leave in that last year. And I, looking back, I think, you know, I cared so much and I did so much. Yeah, I was going to ask for those yeah. people that are not teachers, What's what's to get burnt out? What's to get overwhelmed by? You know, and I'm not asking that in a kind of, I don't know if it's sarcastic or what, but it's just what why why do teachers get to this point? Yeah, it's interesting because I think about is is it to do with being within a system that you kind of have to work with, but kind of you feel like you're working against it sometimes. I mean, I used to get really frustrated by, you know, having to to submit data in a way that um, kind of really re- re- reduced students down to a bunch of, you know, grades and percentages um, and that sort of thing. And, of course, then you feel a need to, well, at least I did, to really work, work very hard to get other feedback to students so that they knew that they weren't more than the grades in their report card. So, it, yeah, I think... Because then I think about, you know, I, I would identify myself as quite burned out from my from managing diabetes as well, and I wonder about that being like trapped within a system that's just kind of constantly working against me, and I have to continue to navigate that on a daily basis. So I wonder if that, you know, I, I've often thought about like what, you know, is it being in a system that's just really challenging and kind of relentless? And I suppose once I left teaching, I didn't have that system around me. Um, but yeah. so you did decide you decided around that time to leave teaching then that was your kind of you you kind of thought oh look I'll have a little bit of time away from the classroom I've been doing it for 7 years and then yeah well I I was so exhausted that I needed to just take a take a break so my my then partner and I decided to 
do the big trip. So we went traveling. We were, we were all lucky. We were able to be away for 15 months. We'd saved and saved and saved so that we could do that. And it was on that trip that I visited a school in San Diego, just because I still had my teacher. I was interested. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to still continue in education. And I happened upon a maths class in action in that school, even though I wasn't there to look at maths pedagogy in particular, but it was like nothing that I'd ever experienced. It was open, it was collaborative, it was calm and slow and I loved it. So I just asked like what is this pedagogy and the teacher just directed me towards ucubed.org and Mathematical Mindsets which is a book written by the creator of ucubed.org and I just I, I devoured it within a week and I thought oh my gosh this is what I need to do. I need to explore this different way of experiencing and seeing maths and I need to support others to discover this because this is amazing. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. I have certainly taught maths myself a little bit. Um, I've got a general idea of how maths is usually approached in a classroom. But, I mean, what, what was it about this experience that you observed in San Diego that held your interest or sparked your interest yeah. Well, what I saw was a whole class approaching one problem and then sharing different strategies, so their own strategies for solving it. And they were having conversations with the person next to them sharing their strategies. And then there was a conversation as a whole class that shared strategies and the teacher would record some of those on the board and name them like this is Anna's strategy and this is, you know, Jimmy's strategy. And From it, what I remember with my own maths um, education in, say, primary school and early high school, is the conversations were just were um, discouraged. You know, mm-hmm. you're not going to be there, yeah, uh, exchanging your opinion. It's like the teacher tells you how to do it and blasts out that strategy or information, and then you just get on with it. But yeah. I mean, so what, what? What? Yeah, tell us more about. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think that's one of these, I'm I'm pretty preoccupied at the moment with these damaging myths that exist about maths, what maths is, what it means to be mathematically successful. And one of them, I think, is that idea that it is a solitary pursuit that you, and I have those memories as well of being at the desk with the sheet, just working quietly. (laughs) And then at some point, you know, that it gets graded or whatever, and that's kind of it. Um, So, yeah, I this idea of the collaborative conversations is quite transformative, you know, and it's it's an area that I'm really passionate about. Um, These mathematical conversations is one of the things that um, I spend a lot of time in my work doing the sharing of perspectives. And essentially, I think the main difference is that the questions we ask allow the students to actually think. It, they invite thinking and they invite creativity. So um, if we put up a problem like, you know, 23 plus 15, for example. I'm going to write that down right now. <laughs> 23, 23, plus 23, 23 plus 15. 23 plus 15. And we write it on the board horizontally. So, you know, not not in that fashion where they're stacked on top of each other, which is probably what most of us can remember I them being. I just did that. Yes. Yeah. I'll yeah. show you what I've written. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So horizontally, so across on the page. One yeah. line. 23 yeah. plus 15 equals. Okay. 
And what I would even suggest is remove the equals because okay. we don't know what the answer is yet. It's kind of like, oh, here's a problem to think about and solve. And we don't know what it equals yet because we have to think first, right? So um, if you had to solve that problem in your head without, you know, doing any jottings, what do you know about those numbers that might help you do that? Or how might you approach that problem? I'd probably start with the bigger number, 23. That's mm-hmm. sort of like a, a starting point type thing. Seems yeah. like it's it's not going to be top heavy, my, my thinking. So if I start with 23, then um, I guess it's comfortable to sort of add in tens, you know, 23, 33, 43. So I'd mm-hmm. probably add... 23 plus 10 is 33, mm-hmm. and then I would add five on top of that. And then I can al- I can almost hear my poor little brain tinkering away, and sometimes I, I like, <laughs> like going, this is probably a really um, not a very, uh, uh, what is it, successful strategy possibly, I don't know. Uh, so 23, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38. And I had to use my fingers then. And how confident are you that you got the right answer? Oh, very confident. Beautiful. It's interesting because I think we've been enculturated to think that there is one efficient way to solve these problems. And that, you know, for many of us, it's probably that stacking on top of each other has been Um, you know, carrying the one or whatever, you know, if there is a one to be carried. But what's really beautiful about your strategy is that you used what you knew to work that out in a way that you're confident about the answer. And that's pretty much, I guess, for me, essentially what we just did was a a number talk where I I presented a number problem and you came up with a strategy to solve that problem and you used reasoning. So by verbalising it, you reasoned. And so by doing this on a regular basis over time, we build our number sense, we build our confidence. And my own story of discovering number talks is that it changed my life. Like I used to use the calculator as a crutch because I would, you know, redo the same sum over and over again to make sure I didn't hit the right button. I I look back, this is me in my 20s working in, um, you know, pubs and cafes and stuff, balancing books, and it was painful. And I I used no reasoning. I just did what I'd learned was efficient, which was either doing it the long way on page or and or using a calculator to check. But now, you know, I do my banking in my in my head and it's fun. (laughs) I know that sounds silly. I know it sounds silly, but there's this sort of um, joy that, or this nice bit of feedback from my brain, which is like a hit of dopamine when I get the, you know, I click the button and yes, I have balanced my credit card to the decimal point zero zero, And it's only because as a teacher, I was able to encounter a, a different way of, of solving number problems and over time build that sort of everyday number sense where, you know, I'll be in a shop and I can predict exactly how much change I need. It's not something that I could do before, before I definitely suffered from everyday number anxiety and um, kind of pain, I suppose. So, yeah. yeah. One of the things I did re- sort of like, well, I don't know if it discovered, I sort of um, I observed maybe when I started doing um, freelance work and I had to do my own invoices, my brain kicked into a not a completely different gear, but it was like, okay, it's for real now. Mm-hmm. And I made sure those numbers 
um, and GST and reversing that GST divided by 11 and then Excel spreadsheets. And I thought, oh, it, that's really interesting that it was a different, um, I don't know if I could describe what it was, but it was a different way of approaching it so that I the 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 stakes were higher and I needed the numbers to be actually really accurate. Not well, not really accurate, but I needed them to be accurate. And so and now I guess I continue to this day with that sort of thing. But then because your context is about teaching younger learners how to well, how to be comfortable with numbers and how to maybe engage with different strategies. I mean, what happens with these exchanges? Just say, you know, Alex, what's your strategy for 23 plus 15? And everyone's listening. Do the, does the teachers, does the teacher facilitate, well, which one do you think is the best or which one do you prefer or how does it work? Yeah, so typically, and so this would number talk, <clears throat> and it would run but anywhere between maybe five or 15 minutes. And the students at the start all have quiet think time. So that's when they're doing their mental calculation, but in their, in, in their head or with their head. And then after enough time, you know, maybe a minute or depending on the complexity of the problem, the students are invited to share. And it's very much invitational because um, this is so important because we have so much maths anxiety that putting people on the spot is something I, I feel very strongly about being avoided. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah. if someone's going to put their hand up and say, I'm ready to share with the group, you, you'd imagine there's a degree of confidence or they're, they're, they're sort of like demonstrating their own agency and a willingness. They're not being, you know, I guess they're kind of comfortable. They're, they're wanting to share. Yeah, yeah. And because everyone's had that think time, it kind of evens the playing field for being the one that has the answer first. So during think time, no All one right. yeah, no one yeah, no one puts their hand up. It's it's think time for the whole time. Students, if they've already solved it, are encouraged to look for another way of solving it. So oh, that's yeah? okay. sort of their, that's kind of the extension that's built into that. Yeah, um, I guess it takes the edge maybe off that uh high achiever uh getting an ego trip or something. It's something something else is going on with yeah. the dynamic. It's not about the numbers, it's about showing off maybe. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I guess that's why this approach is so powerful because it has these inbuilt nuances that try to minimise those sorts of things that, you know, that, I mean, students are, it's explained to students, you know, putting our hand up can be distracting or can put others off. And so, so when students are actually ready to share or they're invited to share, we use hand signals. So it might be, you know, put your thumb up if you feel ready to share your strategy. So the teacher can see that, but it's not like hands up and, you know, that's kind of putting other students off from volunteering their idea. Um, and then this, the teacher will collect, first of all, they collect all the answers that came out. And that's actually quite a powerful, powerful thing because it's saying maybe more than one answer actually came out from the calculations that have, um, you know, happened here. And we can be curious about that, like, you know, maybe there's something about this problem that makes it actually a little bit tricky. There's some sort of misconception that we can look at together um, or some trick in number that's a bit unusual. Um, so there's that. 
element and then it's the sharing of the strategies. So again, it's, you know, if you're ready to share your strategy, thumb up and we might have time to share three or four different strategies and students are then invited towards the end. So to answer your question, once that three or four strategies are shared, then the whole group is invited to have a look at those strategies and think about them in a particular way. And so one question might be, um, have a look at these strategies, which two are quite similar, but a little bit different. Like what is it that makes them the same or different, for instance? And I really like this part of the number talk because it means that everyone is invited again to think about the strategies on the board. Even if no one contributed a, a strategy, they may be able to contribute an idea, you know, with regards to that question. But what, another question that could be asked is have a look at these strategies on the board. Which one makes the most sense to you? Um, and that, you know, you might want to try it in the future or something like that, or you think about preferred strategies. I'm kind of reluctant to ask students to actually vote on a most efficient strategy because I yeah. don't really think that's super helpful in communicating this message that there is more than one way to solve a problem. And we all have different brains. We've all got different mathematical experience. So, so is, some- there not, is there a concept of of um, the, the, well, not so much the most popular strategy, but the kind of the one that is recommended or it doesn't sound like it is. There is that kind of idea or I don't know. Yeah. Well, what what I really love about this is that it allows, it kind of, I think that this is an example of, of trusting that students are actually really switched on. They notice stuff. We don't have to say which of these is the most efficient strategy. They Get, they they can notice that themselves and we don't have to say this strategy is the best, therefore this child in this class is currently the most efficient at solving these problems, which I think... <laughs> I feel like if I'm reading your tone of voice... <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I, you can tell where my <laughs> some of my passion kind of lies in kind of, yeah, let's just even the playing field, let's reduce that um, idea that anyone is really, you know, much more smarter than anyone else I think that's for some reason I don't know about you but I feel that this is more of an issue in the math space this idea of someone being smart if they do the best work in maths or you know and and so any kind of teacher moves or messaging we can make to alleviate that I think um and, and just trying to create a more inclusive environment where everyone's ideas matter as much as each other's and so, allow students to make their own conclusions with our help, you know, oh, you know, think about which one makes the most sense and why, then think about what you might like to do, in, you know, and we don't have to hear all of the thoughts in the room all of the time. Yeah, um, I was wondering that with how much of the, um, the, the kind of classroom time is allocated to this, like when do the students get on with solving all their homework or, you know, solving all their, the kind of <laughs> working their way through all the problems or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a number talk. Like I said, it runs for five to 15 minutes and it's standalone because it's focused on, you know, number and, and doing it regularly over time is going to build up that mathematical power for solving these problems. So it can be done at the start of a math lesson. It can be done at, if you're a primary teacher, you've got students throughout the day. So it could be done after recess or after lunch or at the end of the day. That's a nice thing about these little standalone maths talks. Um, yeah. So then, you know, you do your other maths program or your main unit or, or whatever it is. 
as you do and you you just sort of fit this in on a regular basis if it's something that you feel is going to you know, support you and your students. I've found it to be really transformative. And and I guess one of the really cool feedback or one of the great, you know, examples of feedback for myself and other teachers who've used this is kids come in after they've done a couple of days of this for the first time and they say, are we doing a number talk today? When are we doing our number talk today? I mean, yeah, so it's sort of that, that is to have kids coming in asking to do a maths activity is quite, I think quite, you know, it's pretty special. Um, and over time, those students who are a bit reluctant to share their strategies, they soon see that all ideas are valued and they and they volunteer over time. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a, yeah, it's an important approach and one that I am a big fan of, as you can probably tell. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So this is all really quite interesting. I didn't realise that maths could be conceived in such a kind of different way or different ways. I can imagine just with different maths colleagues that I have um, chatted to, this is this polarising for people. Is everyone on board with these approaches or what's going on with the maths teaching community yeah, it's it's really interesting because I mean maybe you've seen articles pop up where there is this talk of sort of explicit instruction versus inquiry as opposed to you know how about a little bit of both or how about an integrated approach and and that's actually the work I'm doing at the moment through the Mass Play Research Project is what does a balanced approach actually look like sound like feel like you know in a in a little lesson of maths what collaborative learning takes place? You know, how, how are you framing questions so that students respond and then they learn with and from each other? What's the explicit teaching that's happening in that situation? And what, what sort of elements of inquiry are happening as well? And so, yeah, it is, it is really interesting. In terms of number talks, what's happening is the teacher is picking a problem that they're giving to students based on, you know, where they're at and what they're learning and what they're mastering. And the student, there's a lot of collaborative learning happening because the students are the ones coming up with and sharing their strategies. The teacher is recording those on the board. So they're really facilitating that all of the students in the group can access each other's ideas by providing a visual representation. And I like the way you are outlining very systematically, because I spent many years working for TAFE. and then that, that kind of taps into the the kind of observable uh, kind of competencies that's mm. for adult learners. But then the way that you're phrasing things with, you know, what evidence do we have of collaboration? Mm. And then here it is. And then, you know, like the, the components are kind of seem very yeah. grounded and clear mm. in a way. Yeah. The the number talk stuff. I mean, look, it's got a it's got a really long history. It's it came out, I think, the US. So the the first books that I got on number talks were by a teaching duo, Kathy Humphreys and Ruth Parker, and they've been trialing and developing this approach in classrooms for many years. And what I love is that their second book actually refines the approach further based on additional learning. So the first book is, you know, making number talks matter. And then the second book is making number talks matter even more. 
And Ruth Parker shares a personal story. I think it's in the second book about her own experience as a student and being called upon in class. And it's from that personal perspective that they really um, advocate the need to hold back from cold calling and ensure an invitational approach. She talks, I think she talks a little bit about the social anxiety that she had as well at school. And so it's not just the maths anxiety, but often the social anxiety of being putting on the put on the spot. And being able to understand that as an educator, I mean, I, I can I can really easily understand that because that's my story as well. I grew up with social anxiety. So that's really easy for me to understand and possibly part of the reason why I really, you know, jump on board this this some of these approaches. Um, but it's really important to understand that that is a condition that a lot of people are managing or a, or a situation and that, you know, just by tweaking tweaking the approach of, of making an invitational and trusting that over time, if, a, if students in this situation feel comfortable, they will begin to share. Um, look, there are, other, there are other approaches to support all of that and I don't want to sort of get too bogged down, but you know, it is an approach that is gaining momentum. So Number Talks is, a, is an approach that's gaining momentum in Australia. It's it's listed on a lot of the, the education, government education sites as a, as a useful strategy for our toolkits. And what I found is that by by running Number Talks regularly, I developed a really, quite a craft of asking questions that drive a discussion. And that's a skill that I've then been able to apply to other maths learning contexts as well. So more of your investigation type stuff and other lessons, small group instruction and so on. What sort of age group is this ideal for? All ages, <laughs> all ages. It's just a matter of changing the, the mathematical prompt. So in prep, you might have a collection of dots on a 10 frame and it's how many dots do you see? How do you see them? Um, in you know high school, it's going to maybe be just more complicated problems. Um, you know, eighteen uh, multiplied by nine is a nice one for maybe upper primary, early secondary. Just to sort of throw out an example where you can actually be using multiplication understandings to apply bigger multiplication problems in your head by using reasoning and building off relational understandings, building off other. You know, if you know that. Um, 18 times 10 is 180, then take one, um, hang on, one nine away or something. I don't know. <laughs> I've just put myself on the spot. But the idea of, you know, using what you know to then figure out what you are working out um, being a, yeah, so it's, it's all ages. And I've, I've, run, I've actually run the dot number talks, like a cl cluster of dots um, with adults, and they just, it's, yeah, they have so much fun with it. So... I think um, this idea of play, maths, playful maths and maths play across the ages is, uh, you know, I I'm working on this stuff at the moment and researching it and I think it could be possibly, a, you know, one way of really transforming the maths experience for people across our community if we can <laughs> find ways of sharing these ideas a little bit more broadly than even just our schools. Who knew that the words play and maths would be used in the same sentence? <laughs> Even just that, that you've you know yeah exactly. So it's it's a uh, it's really interesting because I speak to, I get to speak to mathematicians a lot through my work and I have done it for the last few years. And the way they talk about maths and present maths is is it's their, it's play. It's like going on an adventure and exploring. And mathematics is so much more than what we experience at school. And so it's um, yeah, it's definitely worth 
sharing these ideas because I think it could be quite transformative, not only for us in our everyday life and being confident when we encounter numbers, like with our spreadsheets for our invoices and that kind of thing, but, um, you know, as a society, like if we really want more people to pursue mathematically rich professions, they need to feel successful and, and engage and enjoy to, to even begin that journey. So it's there are a lot of reasons to really stick with and um, come up with ways that allow people to see that they're that they're creative and that mathematics invites their creativity and that yeah, regardless of their life experience, everyone has mathematical ideas worth listening to. Yeah, because it is a bit of a um, a kind of culturally informed concept of, you know, the isolated, nerdy mathematician. But then what you're saying, it's almost like you're, you're giving a nod to the whole fabulous uh, value of uh, exchange and conversation and the social aspect for a start, and then it's kind of like for a young person that's maybe got a got a knack with numbers, if that's a phrase, um, they might not be discouraged so young. They might actually see it as viable, or you know, it's kind of like, well, I guess I like the human aspect of it that ap- appeals to me. This sort of conversational aspect. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, the conversational aspect? Yeah, well, I mean, number talks are an example of a conversation. And one of the really nice things about maths talks in general, because there are other types of maths talks where, you know, you're not solving a number problem, but maybe you're looking at a visual and you're sharing what you notice and you wonder about that mathematical visual. Or maybe you're looking at two items and you're noticing what's the same about them and what's different. So maybe, you know, two two different numbers shown on a 10 frame. Um and, and, I'm looking and, at I'm looking at this book we I showed you earlier. Yeah, Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. It's called Maths Without Numbers, and there's just I'm looking at some of these visuals that have, I mean, they're all I'm assuming they're all informed by numbers and maths, but they're all very much real world, like a Ferris wheel and a island with a you know. There's so many really cool examples, even like a, a beehive kind of hexagon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what were yeah. you going to what were you going to say? Yeah, well, I was just going to say that all of those situations where we come together as a group and we look at a problem or a visual and we share our mathematical and non-mathematical ideas about it sometimes there might be ideas about color and and other things, but it's all important, it's all in part of the process, but the students this is a time where they get to connect with each other and listen to each other's ideas and someone might share an idea that sparks an idea in someone else just like we have in a conversation. And I really, there's this sort of idea in maths, I feel, that when we're doing maths, we need a pencil and paper with us to do it. So in a maths talk, we don't have that. And it's kind of this really nice space where we don't have this administrative burden that seems to accompany every other mathematical learning situation. Oh, that's a loaded phrase, (laughs) this administrative burden. I like it. It's poetry. Well, it's like, you know, you could, in primary school, you come together for a shared storybook time, right? And, and everyone gets to just enjoy that yeah. story. And it's considered an educational activity. Why not something similar in maths where we come together and we share I- ideas with each other through conversation? Um, because, I mean, I don't know about you. I'm sure, I'm sure you can agree with this because I know how, uh, how much you love conversations, <laughs> but. This idea of, you know, learning from conversations 
and just trusting that if we have some conversation, have more informal conversations in our everyday, maybe education, that we can trust that students are gaining something from that. They're remembering something. Um, I know that when I was in the classroom, I felt compelled all of the time that I needed evidence on paper of learning and particularly in maths because it seemed to just be this area of stress where like we've got to make sure the students are moving along in this particularly challenging area. Um, and, yeah, so I think that the time that I've, I've spent kind of researching, playing around and reflecting is having a space that's carved out where it's just conversations and there's kind of no pressure to really document everything that the students are thinking and doing I think could be really a pow powerful part of actually getting them to really enjoy the the discipline. Um, so that's, yeah. But look, that social element as well. I mean, we're at school with others. That's the time where we should be learning with and from each other. And part of that is going to be through conversation, like informal conversations, and then your more structured situations as well where you're working together. That's not to say that solitary work time isn't important as well, but... Uh, I think, and that, that's really important to remember that too. You know, I'm a big fan of um, Susan Cain's work, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. You know, I define as an introvert. I really enjoy my quiet time. I love that I get to work from home. Um, but I do know that I miss out on a lot of learning opportunities from those impromptu conversations at the water cooler in the office or the staff room. Like I know that that's something that's missing, um, but yeah, just in terms of where we're at school and trying to find that balance so that, that students get to learn with and from each other and then also have that, that quiet reflection time as well. In terms of actually supporting mathematical understandings, which is the goal of all of these activities, all these, you know, methods, um, the, the verbalising that happens in those number talks often is when the students go, oh, wait, oh, no, I made a mistake. So, it's that process of verbalization that really supports this sort of number sense developing and that kind of thing. But, you know, in this safe space where the students get to, to share and listen to each other as well. But just with that idea of conversations, I just think I've, I've been thinking a lot over the last few years and maybe in part because I've been playing around with this approach, just how much we learn from conversations. So if I catch up with a friend and have coffee with them, you know, there are things that I'm thinking about on the way home that are like a takeaway. There's 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 usually a new link in my phone to look at because something came up in the conversation that my friend offered an idea or a possible solution for or a place to go and learn more. And so this idea of, you know, having conversations with other people and not even knowing what you're going to, what's going to come up is kind of what makes it a playful way to learn because there's this, first of all, the social element and then there's this idea of you don't even really know what you're going to talk about really and what's going to come out of it and where it's going to lead you later on. And it's sort of this, this, yeah, I don't know. I, I really like the idea of kind of acknowledging or advocating for more of more having of conversations and seeing them as opportunities for growth and learning. Um, well, for those people that are listening to this episode, we have reached <laughs> meta territory because we are talking, we are having a conversation now. And I didn't know I, we were gonna, we were going to cover all of this stuff. So I had I have I am a learner. I've learned stuff that yeah. is, I didn't know this was all going on. And I guess I'm I'm 
on board with it because and I'm I too am an introvert, even though I don't come across as one sometimes. Um, but you know, I guess there's a, there's a great value I believe in what you're outlining the kind of this idea and beauty of just conversation exchange. And I guess I, just from a few minutes ago when you mentioned about the students are thinking through and as they verbalize, it's almost like an active reflection on how how it kind of sits with them and whether it's successful and going to work. You know, it's this sort of idea that it's sort of out in the world, it's shared with a group and then a, a great opportunity to, well, consolidate maybe is a word. Um, yeah, yeah. And look, done regularly, they, these moments sort of add up as incredible evidence for learning, you know, or evidence of learning or what have you. And But in a way where the students are actually experiencing that moment and witnessing it um, in each other as well. So, you know, back on that phrase, administrative burden, you know, that's something we've got to reduce for teachers too. So the less we're marking, <laughs> you know, marking, the, I feel, the better. And so more and more experiences where, where learning is visible that doesn't really require you know, administrative sort of extra administrative tasks on our side as well, um, I think is really important. So, yeah, that's the big picture meta stuff is like, you know, how could moving some of our teaching pedagogies in maths kind of support longevity in the workplace for teachers? I mean, I, I mentioned to you the other day that I'm pretty sure that it's, it was the teaching of maths that I feel quite strongly that if it wasn't for the fact that I was so invested in trying to move every student along and working so hard and giving all these individual tasks to kids at different levels, it was a huge amount of work. And I wouldn't operate like that now knowing what I know. Um, and I do think that it was part of the reason why I just really um, hit the wall and had to, had to step away from teaching. I suppose one of the things that I've really appreciated is being able to step outside the classroom and spend some time exploring the world of education slash maths education and discovering that, you know, I am a maths person and that everyone is a maths person. That sort of was the big thing for me. And I appreciate that I accessed that in a very unlikely place or a sort of inaccessible place in that I was visiting a school on the other side of the world and I saw a math lesson in action and that kind of everything snowballed from there. Um, but, you know, it's professional learning opportunities to see another class in action or have conversations or being able to be connected with other teachers and play around with ideas, I think is something that it's just so powerful. I mean, and that's what we need more of, I think, or at least you know, and, and that's what I'm excited about through the work that we're doing with the MathsPlay.org project and, you know, along with other other organisations like MAV, uh, Maths Associations across Australia. This, this All this stuff is on our radar. It's all stuff we're talking about at conferences and sharing through blogs and other PD. So it's there's definitely, there's definitely a maths movement happening, which is really exciting. So, you know, I reckon in five years, the idea of maths and play going together, that'll just be a new thing that's been around for, a, you know, a year or two and, and, and we'll all be familiar with it. So that's the dream anyway. Yeah. In this episode, I chatted with Alex Box, a primary educator and educational researcher. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to the newly launched website, mathsplay.org, and other resources mentioned in our chat. By the way, Alex and I continue to chat after the episode, 
about her solution to the very much on the hop 18 multiplied by nine problem. She wanted to emphasize it's best to encourage students not to rush a calculation and to allocate an appropriate amount of think time so students can make sense of their approach. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.